Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 28. Well, I'd like to start by asking this question of everyone here and at home. What is God's will for your life? Now, if you're anything like me, you've heard this question in the past and your mind has gone to things like, where should I work? You know, where should I live? Uh, what, what trade or field should I pursue? Who should I marry? How many kids should I have? What should I do when I retire? How am I going to retire? list goes on and on. Now, the Lord certainly has his watchful eye over all those things, and I assure you they all matter to him. But according to our passage today, according to the word of our Lord, all those things are lesser details of a greater will that he has in mind for all of us. Now again, I'm saying they're lesser. I'm not saying they're unimportant. Uh, think of them like rivers, right? Which first receive the rain from the heavens and then they flow into something much greater like the ocean. And our passage today is trying to show us the ocean and all its glory, right? This bigger thing, the greater thing that everything else is supposed to feed into. So again, what is God's greater will for your life or my life? Or for that matter, everyone's life everywhere? And here's the big idea that I want, that I hope you'll take away from today's passage. From ocean level. God's will is worshipers everywhere. What God wants is worshipers everywhere. In our passage, uh, this Mission Sunday is often referred to as the Great Commission. And here's how great it actually is. Without it, not only would world mission not exist, but neither would this church. None of us would have any idea who Jesus is, which means no gospel, and no gospel means this, having no hope and without God in the world. And if you think this world feels like a living hell sometimes, can't even imagine what it'd be like apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Great Commission is so central to the life and purpose of the church. And everyone here, we're called to pay close attention to it. And I think that's also why uh, Matthew ends his gospel with it. Basically, it's his mic drop moment. It says, uh, if he's saying, enough said, you've heard the Lord, now get on with it. Get on with what? Exactly. Well, we're given a big hint right at the beginning of this passage where we see the disciples bowing down and worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. And here's, uh, here's something interesting about this closing scene at the end of Matthew. His gospel also opens with the scene of worship. 
which means the end is actually a lot like the beginning. In fact, the first story that Matthew reports after Jesus is born is the account of the first people to worship Jesus as the Christ. And you know who these uh, first worshipers happen to be? They were none other than the wise men, the magi, right? Who, after seeing the star over Bethlehem, go on this long journey seeking the newborn king of Israel. And I just want to read briefly from that scene in Matthew chapter 2, where the, where the magi finally arrive in Bethlehem, Jesus' birthplace. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they, the wise men, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this scene is, is quite unexpected. It's maybe too familiar to us from all the Christmas pageants and such, but here's a surprise. The very first worshipers of Jesus the Christ, it's not Mary and Joseph, it's not King Herod or anyone from his royal court, the very first people to worship Jesus are the Gentiles, right? These wise men from the East, these outsiders from a faraway nation. They're the first to recognize and bow down before the King Jesus. And they also lay their most precious gifts before him. Now you think... Matthew is maybe trying to give us a hint or a clue early on about where this gospel is headed. The snapshot of, of, of Gentiles from the nations coming to worship the Jewish Messiah. You know, that should get your, your antennae up and, and wondering, what is this all about? Well, it's about God making worshipers for himself everywhere through Jesus. Which uh, brings us back to our passage, which is this climactic moment of the disciples worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. Look with me again at uh, chapter 28, verse 16. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Well, the first detail that we're given here is that the, the disciples uh, traveled to this mountain in Galilee. You know, and this is a detail that I most of the time just skim right over, right? It's, but it's actually not an insignificant detail. Because they were coming all the way from Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, which, by the way, was a journey of, of roughly 100 miles. Right? Imagine covering most of that on foot on ancient terrain, terrible roads. So this was not an easy journey. It was, it was uh, you know, once again, like the wise men, the disciples came a long way to meet with Jesus. You know, for them, this was something of a, of a long, obedient walk of faith. Because Jesus had, in fact, directed them to this journey. And I feel like this is kind of a, a fitting metaphor for the Christian life. 
many ways. Now, this journey was, was for good reason, thankfully, because this whole scene actually represents the beginning of God's greatest promises to humanity coming to fulfillment. And you know how you can tell? It's happening on a mountain. Because it's actually on a mountain that many of the prophets like Isaiah and Micah predicted that one day, one unprecedented day, both Jews and Gentiles would come and commune with God himself. Where all of a sudden the whole world would come to this mountain and they would not only receive God's peace and his counsel, but they would receive the blessing of full inclusion into his very kingdom. So as we peer into this mountain scene, you know, with Jesus and his disciples, keep in mind that what we're witnessing here, what we're being invited to, to even take part in, it's nothing less than the beginning of the end of the age. That is, it's the beginning of God ushering in his kingdom by gathering all tribes, tongues, and nations, uh, worshipers of the Lamb from everywhere. And he's not doing this to, to erase their distinctives and, and diversity, but to actually redeem them and truly unite them under his glorious reign. You know, this is why our first reading was from Revelation chapter 7 where we see peoples from all tribes, tongues, and nations crying out, worshiping the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And here's why they're crying out. Because here's what's being brought to an end once and for all. This present evil age corrupted by sin and death full of alienation, hostility, gross injustice everywhere you look. It's an age that is hopelessly manipulated by the spiritual forces of evil. It's an age of tears. And this is what the Lord promises to one day wipe away. So, um, returning to our passage, it's hard not to notice that the disciples, uh, even in the midst of worshiping the risen Lord Jesus, right before them, I mean, can you imagine this scene? We're still told that some doubted. And it's moments like this where I am so thankful for the realism of the Bible. You know, as one of my professors in seminary uh, would often remind us, there's, there's nothing in ancient literature that is this honest about the human condition. There's nothing like it. Because the Bible is honest about the age that we live in like nothing else. So this, uh, this Greek verb translated here is, as doubted. Um, it's not talking about like hardened unbelief or, you know, really strident skepticism. 
but it's, it's, it has a sense of, of shakiness, of hesitancy, right? That sense of, of weakness or vulnerability that we feel uh, rise up when, when we sense things are getting out of control, or at least our sense of control. In fact, this very verb, you know, translated doubted here, it's the same one that Matthew uses to describe uh, Peter sinking in the water as he went out to, to, to walk and meet Jesus on the water. Now, from the way that Jesus responds to his disciples here, he knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. Because <laughs> here's the first thing that Jesus wants them to know. In the midst of their worship, which is mixed with doubt, look with me at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice he didn't say, I was given just some authority over some limited jurisdiction, maybe just Galilee, maybe this little mountain. No. All authority over everything everywhere. This means that there's no place, no difficult place, or set of difficult circumstances, or, or difficult people groups in all of creation where Jesus is not the sovereign ruler, the sole ultimate authority. Heaven and earth and everything in between is Jesus's jurisdiction. And we need this. We need this great assurance in order to know that God's will and his promises are going to be fulfilled. I like uh, uh, how Paul Tripp puts it here. He says, uh, it's as if Jesus is saying, as you go, you can bank on everything I have promised you because I rule every place where you will need those promises to be fulfilled. God's promises of grace are sure because his sovereignty is complete. Now that Jesus has reminded his disciples that he has authority everywhere, here's what he has for them next. Tells them to go make disciples everywhere. All right, look, look with me at Jesus' great commission. Verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm sure this was to the disciples' uh, shock and amazement. Because how is it that in light of all their shortcomings and all the myriad of ways that they have failed the Lord, how is it that the Lord is commissioning this ragtag, ugly bunch to participate with him in gathering the new humanity to himself? Right? The fulfillment of God's greatest mission to make disciples who will worship him everywhere And yet Jesus does. Jesus commissions them. 
That gives me hope. Now, why does God want worshipers of Jesus everywhere? Maybe you've, you've, you've heard this out in the wild, right? God must be some sort of a profoundly insecure divine megalomaniac, right? Why is he so needy for attention and for, for glory? Actually, Scripture tells us in many places that God has no needs at all, which means that there's nothing that we can actually offer him. He is perfectly and utterly self-sufficient in himself. You know, as I was driving down this morning, I saw the glorious orange sun, right, rising. Does the sun need me? Does the sun need any of us? Now, do I need the sun? Do we need the sun? Absolutely, right? And here's the point. We're the ones that are desperately needy. And that's why we are called to worship. Because this is who God is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the very source of all life. And the good news is the character of his person is that he is perfect, self-giving, holy love. He actually offers himself to us, right? He offers these unbelievable riches of fellowship to all the nations. So, you know, we often think of worship as something that we give, and yes, in one sense it is, but mostly it's, it's how we receive. It's, it's, it's how we receive life from the very giver of all life. Worship isn't, you know, ultimately a bunch of rituals. It's a heart posture of, of, of trusting dependence. You know, that works itself out in lives of, of awe and boasting about what he has done. And Jesus, he's, a, he, he, he's about to tell his disciples, right, one key way that we must worship him as he's about to ascend. He calls them to worship by going out and inviting others to participate in the same grace that they've been given. That's all this is. To go and make disciples who will know the living God in the face of Jesus Christ like they have graciously come to know. So let's go ahead and uh, unpack Jesus' commission to his disciples here now. Um, one thing that's interesting is that in the Greek, there's only one direct command, which is to go make disciples. Everything else is just kind of subordinate or secondary to this command, goes along with it. Now, I don't know what, you, what comes to mind when you hear the word disciple. You know, if you've seen a bunch of bad kung fu movies, I maybe I'm the only one, but um, a disciple is someone who just learns from their teacher or from their master. And the best thing that happens, 
The, the result of being someone's disciple is that as you learn and grow under your master or your teacher, over time you actually become more and more like them. Fact of the matter is, whether we realize it or not, we're all being discipled by someone or something. The only choice you get is who your discipler will be, who your master or your teacher will be. You have no choice in the matter of whether you'll be discipled or not. So this is when I, I want to challenge us to examine ourselves, right? Examine our lives to see whose teachings are we following. You know, and, and, and then be sure to ask of these teachers, who are they loyal to? Is there loyalty to the things of men, which essentially devolve into a tribe or a tongue or a nation? Or are they loyal to Christ, who is the Lord of all tribes, tongues, and nations? Do you sense the difference? Uh, we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus. Um, let's make sure that our foremost loyalty is to Jesus. Uh, and our foremost pursuit in this life would be to learn from him so that we can become more and more like him, not just individually, but corporately, right? And to be like him is to go and share this with others, to give of ourselves to others in this way. Now, um, in order to make disciples, Jesus gives three essential instructions to that end. And this is, this is his plan for how to actually make disciples. Uh, they're they're uh, to go, to baptize, and to teach. These are the three essential elements for discipling, and everything else flows out of this. Uh, so, so let's give it a few minutes and consider them briefly. So first, we need to go. And this is such an amazing privilege and honor for those who are following Jesus. That Jesus has decided to bring his saving good news and invitation to salvation through us. That he would empower us with his Holy Spirit to be witnesses uh, for his, his name here, there, and everywhere. I can't think of a greater privilege or calling in life. You could be the most interesting man in the world or the most powerful man in the world and all those things pale in comparison to this. So the, the, the scriptures use this language, right? This, this, this makes Christians ambassadors, which means that in one sense you can understand church, this local church, we're an embassy. And the Lord's planting all these ambassadors and these embassies all around the world to make disciples who will worship the Lord Jesus. Now, I hope it does tug at your heart that there are so many places, billions of people in the world that are in such desperate shortage and need of gospel goers. I know the, the, the reasons are complex. You know, you have some places it's just impossible to go. 
But as a church, as one little embassy, we need to grow in prayer. We need to strive to, to, to grow in shrewd uh, preparedness to send and to partner with those who are sending so that the gospel goes. Because the reality is, every, every disciple, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we all have a part to play in that. That means um, it's not just up to the professional Christians. <laughs> Somebody called me that once, and I, I was insulted. I felt insulted. But anyways, um, all of us have been given spiritual gifts that play some essential role in this disciple-making process. Which means also, you know, all those questions about what God's will is, all those big decisions that you have to make in life, they should be considered under God's greater will, right? Of worshipers everywhere. So the, the next part of Jesus' instruction is to baptize. Right, this is something that, that is actually the beautiful outworking of us going to the nations. Right, this is how we see, one major way we see it working out in the world. And I think most of us often think of baptism in the individual sense, or it's, it's, it's one person's public confession of faith. And yes, it, it is that. But there's also something more going on here. And you see that in the business of baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See? We mustn't forget that Jesus is sending his disciples out into the whole world, to all the nations. Um, and guess what? All the nations, all the people that belong to these particular groups, they have ways of distinguishing themselves from one another. Uh, for instance, um, my parents... They went through quite the ordeal being naturalized uh, uh, as, as U.S. citizens, right? But once they went through that, and I got to, to, to benefit as a result as well, they were granted the full rights and privileges of, of U.S. citizenship. So you know what baptism also does, or what it at least signifies? It signifies someone, regardless of what, whatever nation they were from, all of a sudden becoming naturalized or adopted into the kingdom of heaven as a citizen of heaven. Baptism, right? It's not done in the name of anything else in creation. It is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the triune God himself, as people are made not just citizens of country X, but they become children of God, citizens of heaven in the kingdom of God. So not only is uh, baptism the symbol of us dying to sin and, and rising to new life in Christ, it's, it's, it's pointing to a new salvation reality. And I must say, this is why if you go out, we gotta baptize. This is just a non-negotiable. 
Now, finally, we come to the last part of Jesus' instruction, which is to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This may seem obvious, but it's often lost in practice. (laughs) At the heart of our mission, we're supposed to be passing on the whole counsel of Jesus. What he said, what he taught, exhorting people to be faithful to his word, while striving in his grace to do the same. But you know what we make it about instead? We go out and we make it about passing on our teaching. It becomes about our words, our clever thoughts and opinions, our brand of uh, self-contrived philosophies. And that's always the stuff of false gospels. And this is why, this is why the people of God over all the millennia have have come to rely on the authority of this word, right? The scriptures, because this is the only place where the teachings of Jesus have been reliably preserved and passed on to us. There's no other place where you're going to find the gospel of grace, of, of Christ and him crucified. This is what the Holy Spirit has gifted to us to obtain a faithful understanding of the whole counsel of God. So, there has been a long history of, I would say, faithful Christian mission and witness, but any honest book about church history will also account for the times that Christians went horribly wrong in mission, went horribly wrong in in either teaching or observing or failing to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And we must must learn from that sordid past um, and, and, you know, be real about how easily Christian mission can veer off course as we drift into the things of men rather than the things of God so that we can press forward simply with this conviction, this simple conviction, we're making disciples for Jesus. <laughs> Not for this denomination or that human institution or for this church. It's for Jesus. Through him, by him, and for him. Uh, now at this point, all of this may seem a little daunting, a little overwhelming. I can only imagine how overwhelmed the disciples felt when they first received this commission. Maybe they were wondering to themselves, right, who are we? Who are we to carry this mission out? For Matthew, he's like, not too long ago, I was just a dirty, rotten tax collector. Or I'm just a fisherman. Or I'm I'm just a young man in my 20s or early 30s, which is, which is probably what the disciples were. Many of them, anyway. But once again, the Lord Jesus knows exactly where they were, and he knows exactly where we are, which is why he gives them this final teaching 
And this is what Matthew heard with his very own ears, and, and he passes it on to us here in obedience to the Great Commission. Look with me at the, at the last sentence in, uh, of Jesus in, in verse 20. For a truth that we must not and cannot live without. Verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Once again, uh, the, the ending here in Matthew is a lot like the beginning because Matthew is the only gospel where Jesus is specifically given the, the name or title, Emmanuel, God with us. And yes, it also happens to be the title that Jesus is given before he's born. And then Matthew tells that story about the worshiping magi. It's pretty cool. Because I, I think that this is why the Lord Jesus came into the world. And why he died for our sins and why he rose again. To fulfill God's will of worshipers everywhere. From all tribes and tongues and nations. So just to recap. Not only does the Lord Jesus have authority everywhere. He also calls us to make disciples everywhere. And all of this is possible, and it's because he promises to be with us everywhere and always to the end of the age. And we're hearing this word in his holy presence. Emmanuel is still with us. God is still with us. He's here with us. So my prayer is that through his perfect grace, given in his holy love, let us all be about the task of making disciples among all the nations. Amen.